Would you all stand? We are reading out of Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to them in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. You guys are champs. Thanks for uh, waiting the parking issues and all the, um, the things that are difficult, that make it difficult to be here this morning. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, we know it's inconvenient, but we're really thankful that you guys are willing to kind of roll with the flow uh, while we try to get everybody into one service for a while. So um, this morning we're, we're back in the book of Matthew. The last two weeks our elders had spent some time teaching Matt uh, Neil uh, two weeks ago, and then Dan last week taught through uh, this section in Matthew 21 prior to what I'm going to teach on today. And so if you guys want to open up your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew 21, we'll be starting at verse 23. And uh, you know, it's a really good day when, you know, somebody asked me before service, so what are you teaching on today? And I said, the fact that you either produce fruit or go to hell, you know, this is a good message this morning. So um, thank you for being here. Like, this is an encouraging one. Uh, in, all, in all actuality, what, what an amazing text that we get to dive into this morning. 
Let me pray for us and then we'll go for it. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Week in and week out, I'm just so grateful that we have the opportunity to talk through your word, Lord, as a, as a congregation to rally around Jesus. And this morning, um, Lord, just like every week, we want you to be placed front and center in this room. God, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are why we're here this morning. And we have so much to be grateful for, God, in a world that um, is so chaotic and with so many voices speaking uh, to us at all times. God, I'm so grateful for the voice of God. I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful to serve a God that can grant us peace in the midst of seemingly difficult and chaotic uh, circumstances around us. And so we give you this time this morning, Jesus, and we pray for all those who are here who even come here with guarded hearts. There's people in this room who literally on their way here this morning were like, I don't want to do this. There's, there's things, there's hurt, there's pain, there's fears and uncertainty and things going on in their life that just prevent them from really opening up their heart to you. But this morning, God, the miracle that you can do is opening up our hearts, God, is exposing our hearts so that you can deal with them, God, that you can encourage us this morning, God, that you can heal us and save us. And Jesus, we just ask you to do the miraculous, the things only you can do this morning, and we devote this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple questions to, to kind of kick off this morning with you guys. Um, what is it that you listen to? What is it that you listen to? What voices do you lend your ear to? What voices do you ascribe power and, and authority and influence? What voices do, do you believe? These, these questions are like increasingly important questions in our world as more and more voices in our world become more and more accessible to us on a regular basis. We have our friends and our family and our coworkers and TV shows and movies and media, our, our social networks that literally our feeds are just littered with, with words, whether that be on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, whatever it is, even our own voices. And, and that whispering in our ears, like the, the desire of our heart that, that we may not even be willing to voice out loud. Like we, we live in this world full of voices that are trying to tell us what it is we value, trying to tell us what is good and what is right and what to do and what to think and what to believe. And so as we come to this passage this morning, I think Jesus is dealing with these kind of issues. He, he's dealing with these priests and these scribes who have listened to the wrong voices. They, they've literally listened to their own voice instead of listening to God's voice. And as we see through this section and across prior sections that we've been studying, Jesus sort of has this stern warning for them. And I, I think if we look closely for ourselves, we actually will see words that are filled with deep comfort for you and I. My, my prayer is that as we look at this together this morning, that it will actually help us to see the dangers of listening to other voices while also reminding us of God's incredible grace and God's pursuing love. Like, I sit here and worship sometimes, and I'm just, I, my heart is filled with gratitude for the God that we serve. Like, he just, we can't worship him enough. And, and the, the first thing we see in this passage is these people questioning Jesus' authority. The, the, more simply, they're basically saying to Jesus, 
Why should we listen to you? Why? Why why lend our ear to your voice? And if you remember last week, Dan Dan was preaching, and uh, we, we saw Jesus, like his sort of this growing conflict with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus had gone into this this temple and he had overturned these tables and he kicked people out of the temple because they were turning what should have been, he said, a house of prayer into what? He said a den of robbers. And so then Jesus affirms the words of these small children who were calling him the son of David, the, the Messiah. And all of this happens as these religious leaders complain to him about this. And in case like, we hadn't understood what Jesus was saying about all of this, he goes and he curses this fig tree as sort of this object lesson for you and I, where Dan ended off last week. And he declares that, that basically Israel had become unfruitful, right? That they were full of empty words and that that was not okay. And so after all of this, these religious leaders are furious. Like they're upset. In their eyes, Jesus is causing trouble Jesus is messing with their tidy little system that they have. Jesus is threatening their authority and their power. And it's been this growing conflict all throughout Matthew's gospel account. And so they're getting sick of Jesus. They're sick of what he stands for and what he's pushing against. And so they show up where Jesus is at and they sort of throw down the gauntlet. In verse 23, It says, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he's teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Why should we listen to you? And at this point, there's, there's tons of things that Jesus could have said at this moment to defend himself, right? He could have quoted the Old Testament to them. He could, he could uh, sort of show that he's this long-awaited Christ that was going to save people from their sins. He could point to his genealogy, and he could basically show them that, like his family tree, show that he was the son of David, that, 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 God, that, that this king that God had promised um, over all of his people forever. Uh, maybe Jesus could have performed some sort of miracle in this moment, do something totally incredible in his power to sort of demonstrate who it is that he is. But instead, in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't do any of this. Like he responds with the question, where did John's baptism come from? Like, and, and in a sense, what Jesus is asking was, was John worth listening to? It's basically what Jesus, was John worth listening to? You might remember John the Baptist out of the wilderness at the beginning of the book of Matthew. He was the one that was preparing the way for the Lord, right? As these crowds of people flocked to him to be baptized. It was John the Baptist who called out all the religious leaders for their fruitlessness and their hypocrisy. And Jesus said that among those born of women, there were none greater than John the Baptist. This is the same John who King Herod arrested because John the Baptist rebuked him of his sin, and then John the Baptist was beheaded at the request of King Herod's wife. And this was John the Baptist who said that Jesus was even more powerful than him, and that he was not even worthy to remove Jesus's sandals. And so John the Baptist goes on to say that Jesus will baptize, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Is this John worth listening to is what Jesus is asking. 
And if you look at verse 25, you see how they respond. They, they respond with this question. And, and we'll get to that in a second. But by the time we get to these two parables that are going to be shared, Jesus has been traveling around. He's been teaching and performing miracles for about three years. And he's, he's become sort of this divisive figure in Israel. Some people are, are super enthusiastic about Jesus. And they love Jesus. They love his teachings. Like the, 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 um, the triumphal entry had just taken place where these disciples and these crowds from Galilee literally escort Jesus into Jerusalem with honor, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and there were a lot of people that viewed Jesus as merely a great teacher, as merely maybe a prophet, and some thought that maybe, maybe he was the long-awaited Messiah, like maybe he's that. But then there were others, mainly the religious elite of the day, the, the ones who sort of wield this significant amount of power and influence that actually saw Jesus as a threat to their system. And this camp of people responds to the triumphal entry with disregard and, and with anger and frustration out of the claims that Jesus is making. And so in a confrontation with some of these people, Jesus tells two parables that he shares here to sort of sum up what it looks like to be for or against him. You're either for him or against him. What it looks like to be right with God or resistant to God and, and bound for destruction. Like, Jesus is trying to lay this out for them. And so he says in verse 24, Jesus answers them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves. This, this part's so funny, right? If we say from heaven... He's going to say, why then did you not believe in him? But if we say for man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These religious leaders demand to know the source of Jesus' teaching, the source of his ministry, like including the triumphal entry that just took place. Like, who is it? What power are you coming in? Who's, who gave you the authority to make these claims? Where did you get this power? Basically, they're asking, what or who gives you the right to say and do these things that these people are so excited about? Because there's a group of people that are so stoked about who Jesus is, what he represents, who he might be. Some of the religious leaders even accuse Jesus of being uh, in a league with Satan. Like, how dare he act as though he's the Messiah or the claims of some? Like, how dare you do that? Jesus has sort of already answered this question on multiple occasions throughout the gospel leading up to this point. And he points out that he's doing the will of the Father who sent him. But this time, he throws the question back on them, right? He asks them to first explain the source of John the Baptist's message. Um, was he a spokesman for God or just some guy ranting and sort of dunking people in the desert? Like, who was this guy? Who do you think that he is? And the answer to this question sort of has a direct effect on Jesus' authority because John the Baptist's ministry was all about doing what? Preparing the way for Jesus. And this was sort of a roundabout way for Jesus to make them consider for themselves 
where his authority actually came from. And so then the, the religious leaders realize that either, either answer they give is going to make them look like complete idiots. Like if they recognize him as John, uh, recognize John as a prophet, then they have to admit to Jesus that they totally ignored and, and ridiculed the word of God. And if they deny that John was a prophet, they'll be going against all of popular opinion, which is going to offend a bunch of people, harm their public reputation uh, as these spiritual elites, these spiritual people. And what's crazy is that their consideration of this question is driven by what? Their earthly concerns. What will people think of us? Like, the, the way they're trying to answer this is how will we be perceived? What will people think of us in what, how we answer this question? Like, they don't even discuss whether or not John was truly a prophet. All they consider is how their answer is going to make them look before others. And above all else, they want to be sure that, one, they don't lose the argument, and two, that they don't offend too many people with the answer that they give. And they sort of have this motivation to, to maintain their place in society. And so in doing so, truth ba- takes a backseat to pragmatism. Like they sort of disregard truth altogether. Like, what do you think will actually produce the best results? Like, what a stupid way to approach a spiritual truth. And this is a question with eternal implications, right? Is Jesus the long-awaited Savior, as John the Baptist proclaimed, Or are they both just misguided preachers? That's the question at hand. And and these three questions have no bearing on whether or not something is right and true, right? These three questions, how will it make me look? What will others think of me? Will I retain my reputation and my influence? Like these questions never help us determine what's true. Choosing the the path that brings good effects right now is no substitute for choosing the path that actually brings us into a closer relationship with God. And so they answer Jesus, what? We don't know. We don't know. And he says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because they're unwilling to put their reputation on the line. The, The religious leaders give a non-answer, and they say, we don't know. And Jesus refuses to directly answer their question. But he has, he's claimed for himself the, the same source of authority as John the Baptist. Like, he's been sent by God himself. Jesus goes on to tell two parables to sort of make this clear and to highlight that the wickedness of those who view earthly approval or earthly influence over true faith and righteousness. The first parable is this, verse 28. Through 32. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But then he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, listen to this, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Like this 
This parable of the two sons sent to work in this vineyard is pretty straightforward. Obviously, the first son is the one who did the will of his father, right? He started out straight up, like, refusing what his father asked him to do. And he insisted then on following his own will. Like, he already had his day planned out. He has no desire to go work in the vineyard, and so he just doesn't go. And then as the day goes on, he sort of does this complete 180 in his thinking. He ends up doing exactly what his father commanded him to do. I feel like this was me. My parents could probably um, reassure us on this this morning. But I feel like I'm the stubborn kid who's like, at first glance, don't tell me what to do. And if you tell me what to do, I'm not going to do it, right? Nope. And then after thinking about it for a little while, you come back and you're like, yeah, I probably should do the right thing. And so here's the, 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 this first son. The second son, at first, sounds like the good son to begin with. But he's actually the rebel, right? He, he addresses his father respectfully, and he sounds really eager to do what it is his father asked him to do, but his actions show that he has no actual intention of doing what his father asks, asks of him. Then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus calls out these religious leaders for rejecting John's message of repentance, and Jesus tells them that the worst sinners they can imagine have a better standing with God than they do. Imagine that. These are the religious elite. He's saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes have a better chance getting into the kingdom than you do. The tax collectors and the prostitutes that Jesus is talking about were like this first son. They started out in a lifestyle that clearly defied God's will. The, the tax collectors were usually the, these greedy traitors and prostitutes were clearly living outside of the bounds that God had placed on sex. And, and then they were encouraging others to do it as well. And when they heard John's message to forsake their sin and seek God's forgiveness, they responded with faith and, and repentance. Like they became citizens of God's kingdom. What an amazing story. And the religious leaders were like the other son. They knew how to talk to spiritual people. They address God with respect, like they, they claim to follow his law in every aspect of their lives. However, when John came with a message directly from God, they actually refused to listen to him. They refused to prepare themselves for this coming savior. And even when they saw the lives of tax collectors and prostitutes being transformed by the power of God's word, they continued in their old traditional ways. Please listen to that this morning. If you grew up in the church and you've been around it forever, it's easy to become soaked in Christianese, to know the verbiage, to have the knowledge, to have it all locked up in here without it ever engaging your heart. And then when you see the farthest off of the far surrendering their lives to Jesus, like getting serious about their relationship with God, we continue on in our traditional ways even though we know that they've found something that we don't have. How crazy is that? They literally would rather maintain the status quo, like the way things have always been done, rather than allow God to transform their lives. It is so easy for us to follow rules. It's easy for us to put the right things in place and just do the right thing. 
And what Jesus continues to address is the fact that doing the right things doesn't give you a relationship with Jesus. It's having your heart engaged to the one who actually is righteousness on your behalf. And this is what Jesus puts back, pushes back against. Like, all the pious words in the world mean nothing if they're not the product of a life that's transformed through faith and repentance. You can talk about it. You can look the part and act the part, and it doesn't matter. Saying things like amen and, and praise the Lord and if God wills and saying things like I pray for you or even saying the words to the sinner's prayer like doesn't actually make you right with God and part of this eternal kingdom. Like Those words only have value when you do the will of God. And the will of God, as the Gospel of John says, is to believe in Jesus as the one sent by God to save us from our sins. That's the will of God. Which in turn, it produces a changed life. Like as our sins are forgiven and the Holy Spirit goes to work transforming our motivations, <laughs> transforming our desires, transforming our lifestyle, like Jesus goes on to tell one more parable to sort of drive this point home. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. Now, before we get into this, I mean, listen to what the landlord is actually doing with this property. He plants a vineyard. He prepares the fence around it. He digs a wine press. He builds a tower. Like, it is a prime spot that he's created. And then he leases it to tenants, and then he goes off into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, listen, he sends his son to them, and he says, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Gnarly. Jesus says to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a, a what? Prophet. So this master leaves his vineyards in the hands of some tenant farmers. This would have been sort of like a business arrangement where these men are hired to actually come in, grow the crops for him on his land, sort of in exchange for some form of payment, like shares of the profits or shares of the crop. So who are the characters that we see in the story? Like, if you haven't caught this pattern yet in the parables we've looked at, like, if there's a king or a master or an owner in a parable, who does it normally represent? 
God, right? And the tenants in charge of the, of the welfare of the vineyard are the religious leaders in charge of the spiritual welfare of Israel, like the people to whom Jesus is talking at. And so these tenant farmers refuse to acknowledge the owner's rights to his vineyard. So they start driving it like it's theirs, right? Like we're just gonna act like this thing's ours and do whatever the heck we want. And so they, they begin treating this vineyard as if it and everything that, that, that in it that belongs to them and anyone who, who says otherwise is, is gonna suffer for it. Like they act like it's theirs, they treat it like it's theirs and anybody who says anything otherwise can get lost. And so the owner sends his personal servants to the tenants and the tenants continue to abuse the servants as he sends the servants to come check on his property. And this is just like God's personal spokesman, right? Like think about the prophets of old. They were persecuted, they're killed all throughout history by the very people whom God sent them to. The people God sends them to kill the ones that God sent to them to actually be a benefit to them. They end up killing them. And often it's the spiritual people who do the killing. It's the elite, the ones that you'd never think. It's not the farthest off of the far, it's the ones who say that they're near. And so when the owner sends his own son, like he sends his son out, the one who's to inherit the estate, the son even is treated the same way. Like the son comes with the full authority of the father behind him, right? He's not a servant carrying this message on behalf of the owner. He's actually the heir of the property, the estate. He has ownership rights to the vineyard. And so he should be worthy of the full respect of the, the, the tenants who rent from his father, who's the owner of the property. And to me, we come to the most shocking part of the story when you consider the implications of this. And I, if you don't take away anything this morning, hear this, that these evil tenants fully recognize that this is the son. Is that not crazy? What are the implications of that? The evil tenants actually acknowledge that this is the son. This is the one, this is the heir. Like they know who he is and they do what? They kill him anyway. Like rather than acknowledge his claim on them, they, they think that if they can do away with them, then they can permanently retain control of the vineyard, right? Get rid of the son. Like we want to be the ones that actually get the inheritance. So we'll just kill everybody that comes in the way of that so that we can be the ones to inherit this land. But if they were to, uh, or so, some of them have recognized that there's a really good chance that this is the Messiah. But if they were to acknowledge that Jesus was actually the Messiah, think about this. Some of these spiritual elites, the scribes and the priests, if they acknowledged to themselves, to him, to people, that he was possibly the Messiah, they might actually lose the life that they've built for themselves. It's gone. Everything they've spent, they've devoted their lives to is gone. People are going to be frustrated. Like, it could anger the Roman government because uh, it could cause them to lose their political position. It could cause them to lose their national identity. Like, even if the Romans didn't take away their position and power, they'd still be turning over their authority to Jesus, the Messiah. Like, they'd no longer be the highest authorities, spiritually speaking, of righteousness. 
They, they wouldn't be in that place anymore because Jesus was in that place. And here's what's sad, is that rather than humble themselves and acknowledge him for who he is, what are they going to do? They're going to kill Jesus. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus' life, you guys. Like, you want to know what God Jesus killed? This is the beginning of it. Simply Jesus walking in the authority that his father had given him, making claims as the Messiah, the son of the living God, and the frustration of the religious elite because they couldn't humble themselves enough to acknowledge who he is. Instead, they'd rather stay steeped in their tradition. Instead, they'd rather have the comfort of the lives that they've built themselves. Instead, what they'd rather have is their position of power and authority for themselves, not relinquish that to anybody else. And then there's the wicked tenants in this parable that sort of face severe judgment, right? They'll be executed for their behavior, for their unfaithfulness. The land and the privileges that they valued so much will actually be given into the care of others who will actually produce good fruit for the owner. And then Jesus goes on to reference Psalm 118, 22 and 23 to warn these religious men of their danger. He says this, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus references this Psalm passage and he reject like they, they had rejected what God had established. And these religious people who, who can use great sounding spiritual words and who even have a pretty good idea of who Jesus is are not going to enter the long-awaited kingdom of God because they won't acknowledge him for who he is. Like those who they despise as horrible sinners, right? But who come to Jesus in faith and and in repentance are the ones who actually gain the kingdom of God. And so likewise, even the Gentiles, who they despise even more than the tax collector and the sinner, will also have the opportunity to become citizens of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. And this warning that Jesus sends out to them doesn't seem to impact them at all. It actually just makes them more upset. When Jesus convicts them of sin, their only response is to resent Jesus the one who represents the conflict, the one who's pushing back against their power. And even then, they do their best to keep up this facade of being spiritual people. Like, how deceiving is that? They're, they're gonna pursue their disobedient course of action in a way that allows them to still retain the respect of the religious portion of society that's all about power to them. And here's what trips me out, is that, we may shake our heads at the wickedness of these religious leaders. It's so easy to read these stories and be like, stupid, the stupid priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. What a bunch of stupid people. But honestly, as I read this, I realize it's so easy for me to fall into the same self-righteous attitude. It's, it's easy for me to fall into the same attitude that dismissed Jesus in favor of a nice, secure life that they wanted. And if that doesn't reek of the American church, I don't know what does. Constantly trying to build our kingdom, 
constantly trying to create security and comfort for us, constantly trying to keep our power and maintain our reputation. All the while, Jesus continues this this model of servanthood, laying our lives down, becoming low to actually become great. What a crazy dichotomy. This is the upside-down kingdom that we've continued to talk about. The religious leaders knew what the Bible said about the Messiah, and, and at least some of them may have even had an inkling that Jesus could possibly have been him. Like Even Satan and his demons recognized Jesus as God's son, and then it does them no good. My encouragement is that we have to trust Jesus to save us, church. We have to recognize that without him as our Lord and Savior, there's no way that you or I will ever enter into the kingdom because not one of us in this room is perfect. So we ask him to forgive us of our sins. We ask him to be the one to make us righteous, and we trust him to do that work on the basis of his death and resurrection that we'll be getting to in a couple months. But true faith does what? It actually produces fruit. A healthy tree produces dead fruit, right? A healthy tree produces healthy fruit. And if we truly trust Jesus to forgive our sins and make us righteous, we're actually turning control of our lives over to him. So, I want to end with this. I'll ask the worship team to come up. Um, there's a few application points that I, just, I want to leave for you guys. And I want you to think about these this week. One is this. Is that we need to measure and evaluate truth and righteousness by the commands and the principles set forth before us in God's word. Not on the basis of popularity. Not on the basis of pragmatism. Not listening to outside voices It is God's word and God's spirit that inform our every decision. Amen? Your social acceptance, your approval does not determine truth. And yet we live in a society that's constantly trying to use their social acceptance and their approval to somehow equal truth. But the ends do not justify the means. Second, make sure that your relationship with God is more than words. After being in the church as long as I have been, it is so easy for me to fall into the traps and the snares sometimes of having the right words to get through any conversation that anybody wants to have with me. Anybody resonate with what I'm saying? How you doing, brother? Oh, good. God is good, right? God's good all the time. You go through a hard thing in your life. Oh, you know, he uses all things for the good of those who love him. Amen, you know, we shout it during our worship time, like amen, we shout praise to God, but yet deep down inside of our hearts, our hearts aren't saying amen, and our hearts aren't singing praise, our hearts are saying protect what's yours, build what's yours, look out for your reputation, be careful about who you trust and what you do, like make sure that whatever you say is politically correct, like There's all of these things that are guiding principles in our culture today that take us outside of the the word of God to put us in a position of basically establishing our own truth in our own way for our own life to build our own kingdom. 
And that's exactly what these religious elite were doing. But knowing the facts of who Jesus claimed to be and being able to respond to people with the right Christian catchphrases does not make you a child of God. Trust Jesus to change and transform your life. It's him. And last thing is this. It's so hard to read a passage like this and not walk away going like, well, I know that I'm saved by grace, but then there's this whole thing about producing fruit. (laughs) Is this works? Well, I want you to know this morning that if your salvation by grace doesn't lead you to produce fruit, like a, a healthy tree produces good fruit, if you're saved by grace in Jesus, as he reestablishes your heart, your purpose, your identity, you better believe it changes what comes out of you. But we have to surrender that to him. Who we were is not who we are now, right? And so we prioritize our lives, our living, by the fruit of the Spirit. We don't just maintain status quo. And I just, I'm going to end with that, but I'm just going to say, like, my prayer for us is that we don't become a church that falls so steeped in tradition. There's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with rhythms. Like, we need them. Liturgies even are important. But at the point that those rhythms And our tradition take precedence over God's word and his spirit. We've fallen into the same snare that the religious elite did. And that's exactly what Jesus pushed back against. And you know you've fallen into that trap even when some of the stuff I'm saying now begins to push buttons in you and you're like, oh, but if I do that, you know, what if I lose my job? What if I don't have any money? What if, you know, I lose all my friends? What if, like, there's all these questions that arise those are such good things to wrestle through because at the end of the day, it's how do I honor God with what I have? He both gives and he takes away. And at the end of the day, my identity is secure in him regardless of what I have and don't have, who likes me and who doesn't like me as a result of standing and living for him. It says that he's become the chief cornerstone. And he says that those who fall on him will be broken into pieces And others, the cornerstone will fall on them and will crush them. So for those that are not willing to surrender their lives to the living God, one of those two things is going to happen. And that's a harsh reality. Either you're going to stumble over the cornerstone because there's no way around it. We do a lot of life where it's like, here's Jesus. And then we're like, "Eh," you know, be as close to him as I can. Like, I don't want to walk through him. Like, I'll go around him. Because he'll break you. (laughs) Coming to Jesus will break you. It'll bring you to the end of yourself, and the only thing left will be him to put the pieces back together and to rebuild something that didn't exist before, the new life that he's offered you. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this amazing work that you've done in us, God. I thank you. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for the renewed heart and the renewed mind that you've granted us by salvation in you. Jesus, I thank you um, this morning that we have the opportunity to be challenged, even feel convicted a bit, God, and, and recognize where in our life maybe there's things, some things that are off. Where in our life have we sort of compartmentalized life in a way that 
we can still maintain our reputation and still maintain our comfort in our kingdom, but still keep one foot in yours. And yet, you say you're either, you're either hot or you're cold. And so I pray for us this morning, Jesus, that we be a church that would be all in, 100% in. I pray for those in this room, God, who have really struggled with you, have really struggled with this whole idea of even sacrifice or laying down their lives to follow after you. And and what they're afraid of, Lord, is what they're going to lose. But I pray this morning, Jesus, that by the work of your spirit, instead you'd give them a perspective of what it is they're gaining and they'd stop looking back at what it is they're losing. Thank you for the new life offered in you. And I pray for those in this room that don't know you, that maybe this morning is the morning where they realize, God, maybe for the first time, that it's time to surrender their life to you, to acknowledge you for who you are, to lay down their life, God, to trust you as the only one that can forgive them, grant them salvation and eternity in the kingdom of God, renew their heart and their mind in you. And Jesus, I I pray by your power, your miraculous power, God, that you have your way with your church and that as we leave here today, God, we just be reminded that we aren't alone on this mission, that your spirit resides within us and that we take you with us. You're with us everywhere we go. Would you empower your church to be the church and let our lights shine brightly for you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.